Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Richard E. Grant, and in each episode, I'll be joined in the studio by Penguin authors ranging from award-winning comics to musicians and, of course, world-renowned literary giants. Each of my guests will bring a number of objects that help shape the writing of their latest book. So far, we've had everything from an antique silver rabbit to gammon steak. And throughout the episode, I'll be playing a number of extracts from their audiobook. The Penguin Podcast with Richard E. Grant. This week, I'm joined by celebrated author Pat Barker, who will be talking to me about her latest book, Noonday. Welcome, Pat. Hello. Pat, I'd just like to say, if I can, before we start, that I've read every single thing that you've put into print, and I feel very honoured and privileged to be sitting here asking you questions today. So thank you very much. Noonday is the culmination of a trilogy that started with Life Class and Toby's Room. For anyone who hasn't read these two books, can you give me a little flavour of what they are like and how they set up your latest novel? The first two books concern three very young students at the Slade School of Art in the years leading up to the First World War. And of course, like all young people, they're very excited to be concluding their studies and going off into the world and doing different things with their lives. Only, unfortunately, it's 1913, so the men, at least, are only going to be doing one thing with their lives. You take them from being uh, young students into being war artists, and then in Toby's room, one of them, uh, Kit Neville, uh, suffers severe facial injuries. Generally speaking, you take them through the idealism and the disillusionment of the First World War. And then with Noonday, there's a 23-year gap. Uh, You meet the same people, now middle-aged, who are in London during the Blitz. Uh, Civilians now, they're too old for combat. Eleanor Brooke, uh, the woman in this trio, is driving an ambulance The other two are also employed in the emergency services and they become entangled in a love triangle which has been there really from the beginning. And why did you decide to have the conflict played out in London? It would have been open to me to use Hull or Liverpool, but Kit Neville has returned to London from America. The other two have lived in London off and on at least all their adult lives. Could we now play a clip from the audiobook of Noonday, in which you conjure up an incredibly vivid picture of war on the streets of London? They walked along rubble-strewn roads, through puddles of water filmed with oil, over fire hoses that lay across the black and glistening pavements as grey and flaccid as drowned worms. On their right, buildings blazed out of control, others, black and skeletal, wavered in the heat. Once, looking ahead, he saw the tarmac come to life and move. He thought it must be a trick of the light, then realised it was a colony of rats, thousands of them fleeing a burning warehouse. Sometimes the ground underfoot was hot, and the people whose feet were lacerated or burned cried out as they limped across it. The really terrifying thing, the one he knew he'd never forget, was when the road behind them suddenly ignited in a long, slow, leisurely lick of flame. Extraordinary and powerful, Pat. Now, you didn't live through that time, but this is the subject matter of what you're writing about. And why is it that you're so drawn to this particular time in history, do you think? 
I think writers very frequently are drawn towards war because in war people are obliged to make life and death choices. And I think it's that sense that war pushes people to the limit. And when you push people to the limit, that's when the surface personality cracks open and you find out what people are really made of. And is there a part of you that would like to have actually lived through these two wars, as your characters have done? No, I don't think so. I think I would have resented my private life and my private purposes being usurped by a national emergency. And, of course, in the case of these characters, for the second time in their lives, Mm -hmm. it has a sort of spurious glamour. But actually, I think a lot of it is just pure tedium. And as somebody once famously said that war was 90% boredom and 10% terror. I think if you could really convey the sense of that boredom, of what it was like to be in the army, in a tent, on a rainy day, with nothing happening, that is the real anti-war book. That would really put people off. (laughs) (laughs) Pat, could we move to your first object? And if you could hand it to me and describe it, please. Well, it's a little purple bottle with wishing water in, which comes from uh, Old Mother Shipton's wishing well in Knaresborough. Uh, When I was a little girl, 11 years old, I was taken to visit Mother Shipton's wishing well and I threw a penny into the well and I wished to become a novelist. So you see the stuff in that purple bottle works. It's magic. It is magic. It does work. I read a book in which... Michael Ondaatje was being interviewed by the sound editor of all the Godfather films. And he worked out that if you followed a passion that you had as a 10-year-old and that then became your adult profession, you had the greatest chance of being satisfied or happy in your life. And if you made this wish as a little girl, it sounds as though you have absolutely fulfilled that. Yes, yes, a childhood passion. It's also quite interesting to me that when people have lost their way, either they're retired or they're bereaved or some other negative life event has happened to them and they're floundering, a very good piece of advice is to go back to what was your passion when you were a child mm-hmm. and see if, as an adult, you can fulfil some variant of that. You know, you mightn't be able to, I don't know, do show jumping or something like that, but you could volunteer at a donkey sanctuary or something like that. (laughs) That's That's the theory anyway. So please tell me about the first piece of writing that you can remember. I wrote nature notes, which were very dull. You know, daffodils came out today, that kind of thing. But then I, I wrote a real bodice ripper. At the age of? Oh, 11... 11, round about 11. Have you still got it? No, I threw it away. Because when I reached the sophisticated age at 13, 13, I thought it was childish. Of course, I I could bring it out now and make a fortune. Because actually, it was hilarious. But (laughs) there was a scene in the shower and somebody's towel came off. I shared it to my then best friend who looked horrified and said, I didn't think you were like that. (laughs) Pat, what sort of hurdles did you face on the road to becoming a professional writer? Almost insuperable. I mean, uh, 
being stuck up north, as you say. Right. Uh, I, I don't think that helps, actually. I really don't think it helps. And wanting to write at that stage about working-class women, and there was simply no market in it. And I was eventually published by Virago, which was interested in the lives of women who, whose experience doesn't normally provide the subject matter of literature. And your first three books have been turned down. Oh, yes, yes. I, uh, I have a long history of rejections. Very good for writers, I think. So what kept you going? Just knowing I had to do it. I became, I think, steadily more myself. In the end, I was asking myself, what is the book I would write if I absolutely knew I was never going to be published? Which book would still need writing? And that book was Union Street, my first published book. The latest trilogy differs from your previous writing as it spans both world wars. Now, Noonday completes the stories of Eleanor Brooke, Paul Tarrant and Kit Neville, all part of a generation that suffered the double impact of the wars. And it's hard to imagine living a life so dominated by war and the very worst of human nature. Were those characters difficult to create or did they spring from your mind onto the page? I tend to like writing about people who are, you know, perhaps not particularly pleasant. I mean, in, in Noonday, Kit Neville says, I seem to have become a bit of a monster. And Eleanor replies, oh, Kit, you always were. I like writing about people who, who are a bit, you know, monster-like. The other two came, yes, easily enough. There's a, a stage in my writing when I start to hear the voice, and that can be a quite difficult stage to reach, or it can happen from the first page. But until you've heard the voice, no matter how much you've written, you've actually got nothing. And how soon did the voice come of Kit to you? Comparatively quickly, I think, yes. Eleanor, throughout this trilogy, is a great letter writer, but she also keeps a journal. And to me, it seemed very natural to switch from the third person into her own first-person account of some of her experiences. It was almost a relief to move into first person. I did also did that with Billy Pryor in The Ghost Road. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he, he starts a journal and then suddenly he's, he's saying I and talking to you directly. And I rather like those moments. So do we as the readers. Noonday can be read as a standalone novel, but would readers miss some of the subtleties if they came to it cold, do you think? Well, I hope not. Uh, it, it is very much meant to be standalone. But it's even worse than that, Richard. What you have to allow for in writing a trilogy is the awkward squad who start with the third <laughs> book and work back to the first. <laughs> and you can't give the secrets of the plots of the first two books away in the third yeah. because you have to cater for those readers too. The Penguin Podcast with Richard E. Grant. Pat, your next object is, I don't know, frankly, extraordinary because could you describe it to us and what you've brought uh, into the studio? Yes. This is the container for a child's gas mask. And on here, there's London County Council, school number 394. And the, the children, of course, who were evacuated in 1939 would all take their gas masks with them 
suspended from their shoulders on a longer piece of string. And you can see from the size of the box that it contains a child-sized gas mask. My two male characters, uh, Paul Tarrant and Kit Neville, having fought in the First World War and having experienced constant gas drills and having experienced gas attacks, I thought how horrifying it would be for such a man to see a child in a gas mask. In a sense, what a sense of failure they would have, that they'd given everything in the First World War, and yet here they were again. Only this time it was back home, and children were having to go through it. There are even uh, toddlers' gas masks. There are gas cots for babies. And you think of the, I mean, the gas was not used, as we know, Mm -hmm. but for parents in 1939, the prospect of getting their two-year-old into a gas mask would be very real and it would be terrifying. Yeah. So the character of Kenny is a great example of how a child is affected by war. Can you tell us in more detail about Kenny, please? Kenny is a, a child who was evacuated from London. He turns up without the luggage label he's supposed to be wearing. And Eleanor looks at him and thinks, yes, you took that off. He's got himself attached to another school and left his school behind. He never really settles in, and the family don't try hard enough to make him feel at home. And his one drive in life is to get back to his home and to get back to his mother. He's worried about his mother because he knows she won't go into the air raid shelter in the yard because she's claustrophobic. And on September the 7th, when they see all the bombers going over, Kenny runs away. He's determined to get back to London. And Paul Tarrant follows him and eventually agrees to take him back to try to find his mother. Well, the next clip from the audiobook of Noonday describes Kenny playing at toy soldiers with Paul Tarrant whilst bombs fall outside. Kenny nodded towards the soldiers. Well, why not? He would take his mind off it. So they munched apples, cheese and bread, drank whiskey and orange juice, moved cohorts of little figures here and there until, eventually, even Paul became absorbed in the game. The background clumps and thuds blended in really rather well. Kenny was the officer, of course. Paul was a not-very-bright NCO. Now and then, an explosion rattled the window frames... And yes, he was afraid. Nothing like the fear he'd experienced in the trenches, though in one way it was worse. He was experiencing this fear in the safety of his own home, and that meant nowhere was safe. More than once he was tempted to go out and try to see what was happening, but he didn't want to interrupt the game. It was so obviously helping take Kenny's mind off the bombs, and so they played on metal armies advancing across strips of parquet floor rather more quickly than they'd done in life. Passchendaele and the Somme played out on the floor of a house in Bloomsbury. Yes, sir. Drifting clouds of smoke obscured the salient. Right you are, sir. A shell landing in a flooded crater sent sheets of muddy water thirty feet into the air. Going out to take a look now, sir. What is so powerful about that is the sense of not being safe in your own home is a huge change from the First World War where it happened abroad. Yes, yes. Where in France you could literally be sitting down to a really rather nice dinner in a nice restaurant yeah. on, the, on the last night of your leave mm-hmm. and then, you know, a five-mile walk 
and, into and hell. you were in hell. Yes. Was the Second World War? It came to you. It, came, it, it didn't yes. have to go anywhere. My uncle came home from leave after being in the Royal Marines for a number of years, and this was late 1940, and the war had been on for 18 months. He came back home and they were bombed. <laughs> Must arise all kinds of questions, because, I mean, men have always been sent to war, being mm-hmm. told you're protecting the women and the children and the home behind you. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you, you couldn't say that anymore. And it was a real problem to maintain the morale of the men who were fighting when the women and the children, they knew perfectly well, were not safe, which is why it was so important to make evacuation work and keep the children away from the cities. But the children kept coming back. The mothers couldn't bear it. They brought them back. Mm -hmm. So your novel is very focuses on parent-child relationships, and there are many intriguing examples throughout the book with people clinging to these bonds when death is so imminent and so close, and then feeling lost when they find that those bonds are missing. Yes. Now, it seems that fitting that Eleanor and Paul are childless, and I'll come to that in a minute, but can you please recap these two characters for us? Uh, Eleanor and Paul were lovers uh, in the first two books uh, when they were very young. Uh, They do eventually marry, despite Eleanor's distrust of the married state. Uh, They haven't had children, and uh, their marriage is a little bit tired, not necessarily weak, but just rather tired, And in the conditions of the Blitz, people were inclined to seize what joy and comfort they could wherever they could find it. Paul, in particular, is sexually very restless. He gets nostalgic about the girls he used to know when he was a young man before he left home to go to London. And when he meets a working-class girl from the north, he falls for her very heavily. And Eleanor, too, has her own variety of that restlessness. She feels that Paul has stopped seeing her uh, in any meaningful way. And so when Kit Neville comes back into her life, very much to her own surprise, uh, she falls into bed with him. And the stage is set for this incipient desire and rivalry to really rise to the surface. So... Eleanor and Paul being childless, is is that at all, is it a deliberate choice and a sense of this being a lost generation? Uh, did I choose to make them childless? Uh, yes, I think I did. There is a mention of a miscarriage, so it may be that they perhaps intended to have children. Mm-hmm. But Eleanor certainly would dispute that it was a major source of tragedy or grief in her life that she's childless. She's, she's getting on with her painting and with her life and she rather resents it when other women seem to imply that women who don't have children aren't really women. You know, she, she, She's not on for that. And she's very incensed when a gynaecologist tells her that fibroids are the tears of a disappointed womb. <laughs> <laughs> a male gynaecologist. Oh, yes, of course. I don't think there were any other kind then, or not many. Pat, your next object is a painting. Could you please describe it? It's uh, a portrait, in fact, of the Battle of Britain. The dogfight is going on. A plane is uh, falling into what may be a sea or maybe a lake. It looks actually like a rather pretty and rather 
happy picture. It's a kind of dance going on in the sky, and if you didn't know what the dance involved, uh, you, you certainly wouldn't think it was a dance of death. And it's, painted by Paul Nash. It's Paul Nash, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of painting that Paul Tarrant was doing in the first few months of noonday, lying out in fields and watching this, uh, these dogfights in the sky and the, the tracer streams which are left afterwards. So Noonday focuses on the role of art and the artist in a time of conflict. Would you say that war was a catalyst for great art? I think it can be in the life of an individual painter or an individual poet. I think some people find their voice through war and uh, very often uh, they hate the situation which has given them their voice. And that is, I would imagine, a rather difficult situation. Paul Tarrant and Kit Neville realise, are forced to realise, that their paintings during the First World War are what they are best known for. Most people would say that those paintings are their best work. And Kit Neville in particular has been comparatively neglected since. And as as he says to Paul, we should have got ourselves killed. They'd be all over us then. Well, yes, you know, it's it's the difference between being Siegfried Sassoon and living to a ripe mm-hmm. old age and being Wilfred Owen, uh, you know, a sort of deathless glory. Yeah. Noonday includes references to the surgeon-turned-artist Henry Tonks, whose job was to paint the facial injuries of soldiers, and who painted Kit Neville's injured face. Now, how do you weave historical and fictional material together? I think you have to... It's quite different. You have to treat the... If you name a character as a real historical character, Mm -hmm. you have to treat them with absolute respect and not misrepresent what they did or what they said or what they believed, as far as you can know that. So, in a sense, you, you have the novelist's responsibility to try to bring them to life, but you also have the historian's responsibility to get things as right as you can get them which is the perfect way to introduce the next clip from the audiobook in which we hear about the painting of Kit by Henry Tonks. A slightly awkward pause, then Neville said, Tell you what I've got that might interest you. He led the way across the hall into a small study. Above the desk hung a framed pastel portrait of Neville himself, though not Neville as he was now, as he had been when he returned from France in 1917. Striving for some kind of objectivity, Paul looked at the drawing. An eye like a dying sun sank beneath the rim of a shattered cheekbone. The lips were pulled back to reveal teeth like stumps of dead trees, and right at the centre, where the nose should have been, a crater gaped wide. This was less a face than a landscape, a landscape Paul knew very well. Neville stood four-square, nursing his glass. Best thing Tonks ever did, those portraits. Words fail me, but what I can say about that, so powerful. You talked a little earlier about this, almost a sense of channeling characters when they start, you hear their voices and start talking to you. Can you explain to me and to the listeners about your next object, which is a book about Helen Duncan. Mm. 
Well, there she is. Uh, I think actually anything that is a really rather flattering uh, <laughs> portrayal of Helen Duncan. I should just quickly say that Helen Duncan was a Scottish medium and the last person to be imprisoned under the British Witchcraft Act of yes. 1735. Well, actually, the well, last person to be imprisoned, not the last person to be tried was a witch, actually, which is interesting. There was one another woman about 18 months later. It's amazing to me that women were tried for witchcraft in the 1940s and that act had not been used for ages before it was brought out to silence Helen Duncan because that's what they were doing, really. And did Helen Duncan inspire the character of the medium Bertha Mason? Uh, There are lots of resemblances, lots of differences. My character, Bertha Mason, is a medium. Physical appearance, yes, they're both immensely, immensely overweight and unhealthy women. Helen Duncan was convicted of fraud. And I think my character, Bertha Mason, is clearly, in some of the things she says and does, fraudulent. But not in everything. She's a curious mixture of the fraudulent and the genuine. Let's hear an excerpt from the audiobook about Bertha. And it's an extraordinary picture that you paint of her pet. Bertha Mason sat naked on a table facing him, surrounded by three middle-aged women, all dressed in black. But he had eyes for nobody but her. The sheer size of her, chins, neck, breasts, belly, all pendulous, the sagging, wrinkled abdomen hanging so low it almost hid the fuzz of black hair beneath. Like a huge, white, half-melted candle she sat, eyes glazed, a fag-end glued to her bottom lip. She made no move to cover herself, just sat there, breathing noisily through her open mouth. He stared. He couldn't stop himself until one of the women darted forward and slammed the door in his face. And what's interesting about, about the description of her is that she seems grotesque, pitiable, and yet ultimately, Paul's ultimate feeling about her is that she is a figure of considerable power. Uh, he ends the chapter in which this occurs comparing her to Persephone, you know, the, the queen of the underworld, and this claim she makes to be the voice of the dead. So she defrauds, Bertha defrauds her customers, abuses their desperation to be in contact with their loved ones. She's not especially likeable, but as you say, she's pathetic and pitiable, but absolutely charismatic at the same time. Is that how you view her? Yes, yes. Um, And she was a difficult character in the sense that she thought it was her book. She was a real presence and it was not a benign presence at all. So do you think that the character Bertha reflects people's determination to believe in something, even if it's a papier-mâché head? Uh, Well, yes. I mean, it was extraordinary because some people sat there and realised they were looking at a papier-mâché head. And yet other people looked at the same object and saw their dead sons or lovers or husband and burst into tears. So the fact that they got consolation from that, that is the key to it, whether they believed in it or not. They got some they consolation got some or consolation, solace from it. But the people who went looking for consolation and, and saw through it probably went off feeling, I would think, even more desperate. Hmm. The interesting thing is, uh, as with Helen Duncan, there are things which are difficult to explain. The reason she was, in fact, tried as a witch and silenced and sent to prison was that she'd revealed the, the sinking of a ship 
before the War Office had officially announced it. So, uh, I mean, probably, probably she picked up gossip in, in the port that the ship nobody had heard, you know, from the ship for a, quite a while. But the truth is we don't know how she did that. Do you think there's any parallel between this desire that people had for spirits guides um, with what happened in Edwardian England when people believed in fairies and very you know, yes. high intellect yes. very established I, 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 figures I, I, did? I think mediumship interests me because spiritualism was quite a working class movement. Uh, spirit, if you look at spiritualist churches, they, they tend to be in rather working class areas. And of course, the mediums were very often women. And the passivity of the medium's role, she, she is just the vehicle for the messages from the dead, suits uh, what was assumed to be the passivity of women. But once you sign off from all that and you say the messages from the dead don't exist, what you've got left is a, a very poor, illiterate woman who is holding forth in a room with all kinds of people listening to her or giving private consultations to, you know, famous people, mm -hmm. even major politicians. And there she is. Suddenly, she's a figure of power. Suddenly, she's being heard. And there was no other way such a woman could have achieved that. What are your feelings about this? Do you, do you believe in... The spirit world or seances? No, I don't. I, I believe that this world is extremely mysterious, much more so than we give it credit for, but I don't actually... I'm agnostic about the next world. I don't believe that we communicate with it. No, I don't. You, have if you been to a is, seance? If it exists at all. If it exists at all. Have you been to a seance? My grandfather was a medium and uh, my family were into it. So, yes, as a child, I went to seances. I haven't been to one as an adult. Being a historical novelist who hears voices, uh, listens for the moment when the voice starts speaking, and being a medium is, is not a hundred miles apart. Pat, it's already time for you to introduce your last object. I can't believe it's come so quickly. And this one takes us back to where it all began. What have you brought, please? Well, I've brought in what passes for a notebook. It's a yellow legal pad, and I like it because it doesn't intimidate me. And it is disposable. You can throw each individual page away. And I don't reread the notes I write, and I'm often in two minds about whether you should keep a notebook at all. So nothing for the archive? Oh, no, nothing for the archives. No, I, I don't believe in archives. A bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> So, Pat, can you tell me about your writing process, if you can bear to, and how many notebooks might you fill if, if you do indeed use notebooks? Well, uh, the reason I use yellow legal pads is mm -hmm. that uh, they, they somehow are very dispensable. It's a nice, cheerful colour. It's very possible to make a fetish of a notebook and to get yourself a very posh, expensive one, which then intimidates you. You need something you can tear up and throw away. It, it has to be unintimidating and friendly. And I'm, I'm not sure I believe in keeping notebooks anyway, though I, I do do it. I think it's one of the many ways in which writers try to convince themselves that they are not entirely and utterly alone. <laughs> and the truth is, yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Do you keep a legal yellow notepad next to your bed? No, I don't. I take it to cafes sometimes and play at being a writer, because sometimes playing at being a writer is a lot more fun than being one. 
But, you know, Ian Foster said Mm -hmm. that he thought it was improper to keep a notebook because it interfered with the necessary process of forgetting. (laughs) And and there is wisdom in that. Yes. No, I see that. So Eleanor Brooke finds a notebook and uses it to keep a diary, recording her experiences of the war. Is that idea of keeping a record important to you? Do you keep a diary separate from the writing that you do? Intermittently, yes. Not consistently at all, no. And I do think diaries can be a great burden to the living unless you have a great bonfire before you die, <laughs> which uh, you, you need to know when you're going to die, don't you? So it's not... It's not uh, when I kept the diaries consistently, they were all about stupid things like paying bills. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pat... Here's a final excerpt from the audiobook of Noonday, in which Eleanor records the destruction left by the bombs. Ever since the raids ended, she'd been recording the progress of the ruins. If she'd ever thought about ruins at all, before the destruction of her house, she'd have said they were static, unchanging, or if they did change, it would be the work of centuries, decades at least, of wind and rain and scouring ice. But these ruins changed week by week, even day by day. And so, every morning, she set out to draw them. She scribbled notes as well in the margins of the drawings, diary entries or sometimes just lists, mainly lists of the flowers and plants she found growing in the gardens of wrecked houses, but also, increasingly, out of the walls of the derelict buildings themselves. There seemed to be no crack so narrow, no fissure so apparently barren, it couldn't support the life of some weed or other. She even, as the days lengthened, became attached to particular plants. A clump of bright red flowers growing out of a sagging gutter, too high up to be identified, but bobbing about on the slight breeze, like the flowers in a mad woman's hat. And then, a few doors down, although now there were no doors, a great pool of forget-me-nots caught in the hollow of a wall. Remember. Pat, it is obviously important to keep the past in the present by writing about it. Mm. Can it teach us things about the problems that we face in the world today? And how does the everyday threat of bombs in the blitz differ from the undercurrent of psychological terror that we experience today, even though we, we see it at arm's length on television and we read about it? I think what I think what fiction can do is to make us simultaneously think as clearly as we can about a subject while still feeling it deeply and there is no other discipline actually which does the two things at the same time as part of a single response which is why in the end fiction matters so much and absolutely mirrors what you said earlier about the the frisson created when you have a real historical figure combined with somebody that you have created. So they're able to bring things out Mm. of that person in a way that is legitimate. Yes. And and the other thing that fiction does, of course, as I do believe it enhances whatever capacity the reader has for empathy... I'd like to think that somebody could read Noonday Mm -hmm. and next time they see the bombing of Iraq or the bombing of Syria could have perhaps a deeper sense of how it feels like to be under, underneath all that, not to be just a flat image on the screen. Mm -hmm. 
So a notebook and pen, which we've just been talking about, is a very traditional way of writing a book, but listening to an audio book is slightly less so. How does it feel to have your book appearing in this form? Oh, I absolutely love it. You have to be practical. We are all very time poor these days. Mm -hmm. I love the idea that somebody can read a novel or have a novel read to them while they're walking the dog or decorating the living room, something like that. Because if you if you don't make that possible for people, there's a danger that reading will get squeezed out of their lives altogether. And it takes you back to the childhood thing of a parent reading or yes. somebody reading to you, which is one of the most... It's the most full... relaxing thing imaginable. Yes. Yes, it, it really is. It's pure luxury. Pat, thank you very, very much indeed. Another fascinating collection of objects, which I hope you enjoyed sharing mm. as much as we enjoyed hearing about them. Thank you. 